promo. Uh, otherwise, enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. The Navajo are a tribe of Native Americans whose earliest settlements lay in the southwestern United States, primarily in what are now the states of New Mexico, Utah, and Arizona. Along with their own ancient tribal war history, throughout the Pacific Island campaigns, Navajo men proudly fought alongside fellow Americans during the Second World War. The now-famed Navajo Code Talkers and their unusual language was used to great effect for the encryption of American radio transmissions, which confounded the Japanese cryptologists who intercepted them. But the Navajo people also speak about things which confound the rest of us. They tell stories about strange things that creep and crawl around the wild desert expanses and forests of the Americas. Legends which persist until the present day. One such popular Navajo legend is about evil witches, something that native people call Yenadloshi. With it, he goes on all fours, skinwalkers. Such a creature is considered half person and half animal. It starts as a medicine man or woman who once used their powers of healing for good, but for some reason they turn to evil, to murder and to eating the flesh of their human victims. And so, they are cursed. They are believed to be immortal. The only way to destroy one is to kill them in their animal form. Not only do skinwalkers bring pain and suffering to their victims, but they can crawl inside a person's mind and control them. They can make them hear things and see things that are not really there. Or so the legends go. But while the Navajo people continue to pass down stories about encounters their ancestors have had with these creatures, it seems there are more than a handful of American service members who, while out training in the field, have likewise come face to face with something they could not explain. Something that terrified them out of their wits. Something that looked like an animal, but spoke like a human. This is the smoke pit, and these are their stories about skinwalkers. Before we enter into the stories from our military service members, it might help our understanding of these creatures to hear one story that is told by the Navajo people. Modern times may have quelled these superstitious fears that many native people once held, always cautious of certain creatures, always on the lookout for skinwalkers. But it was once, if not still is, a very real fear. Navajo parents would warn their children that skinwalkers could look like anyone else during the day, then at night transforming into creatures with glowing eyes. Skinwalkers appear during the day, too, they said, waiting watching for their victims. They could run like the wind and easily track down a person. One Arizona Navajo man tells us a story that took place about a hundred years ago. This man's name is Art Tracy Jr. and his story was published by fellow natives from the Ponca and Tongva tribes in a book they subtitled Chilling American Indian Stories. As his mother relayed the story to him, 
In the 1920s or 30s, there was a Navajo man working as a ranch hand for a wealthier Navajo landowner somewhere around the western part of the Navajo Reservation in Tuba City, Arizona. One day, he decided to ask his employer for a few days of leave to go and visit his family where they lived in New Mexico. Riding horseback through desert canyons, mesas, and open range, he eventually stopped along his route to rest for a while. While paused, staring out at the desert expanse around him, he suddenly spotted an old, mangy coyote sitting on top of a hill not too far away. The man pulled out his rifle, took aim, and fired, watching the coyote drop to the ground. He then walked over to inspect his kill. Reaching the top of the hill, he was shocked to find not the body of a coyote, but a young Navajo man with long hair, at least part of a young man, and he was dead. The top half of his body was human, the skin painted with designs, and his lower half that of an animal, covered in the fur of a coyote. Now horrified, the man who shot him looked around, wondering what to do. Spotting a deep crevice along the canyon's edge, he dragged the creature's body to the cliff and hurled it over the edge. His fear growing, he then mounted back up and rode his horse near to death, riding even past nightfall, trying to put as much distance between himself, the creature, and the place where he killed it. Finally crossing the Chuska Mountains, he reached his relative's home just past Shiprock, New Mexico. After recounting his story to them, they too experienced an unnatural fear. You must never go back to your employer, they told him. You have to stay here. The relatives of the Skinwalker will be looking for answers, and they'll be out looking for you. It stands to reason that a creature that takes the form of a wild animal would more than likely be encountered in the wild. It should be no coincidence then that the majority of these following stories take place in the wild, unkempt regions of various military installations, what service members would call the field. After all, military bases are often built on the more undesirable expanses of undeveloped land, those which are often still covered in dense forests, or vast expanses of unusable desert. These portions of land are therefore only differentiated from wild land by the long fence surrounding the base's perimeter, maybe with a mess of barbed wire adorning the top. But a fence only keeps out law-abiding people. Animals and unexplained creatures with a mind of their own will always find a way around such trivial man-made barriers. This first military encounter would seem to verify that. They agreed not to tell their commander. You got any plans for this weekend? Yeah, I'll probably go see that new Rocky movie. There's another Rocky movie coming out? Yeah. Who's he fighting this time? Apollo's kids? Huh. No. Some commie bastard. Some Russian thing. That looks all right. Yeah, all right. Mind if I come see it with you? Sure. The girl just dumped me. Oh, again? Yeah, get... Oh, jeez. Hey, get, hey, get, your, get hands your hands up. up. Damn. Sir. Old man, you scared the shit out of me. Sir, get your hands in the air. Oh. Get your hands up. Do you have any idea where you're at right now, old man? I think there's something wrong with him. 
Either he's deaf or he's got some sort of mental problem. Sir, get your hands in the air. Hey, go ahead and call this in. This is Rover 1. Come in, over. HQ, this is Rover 1. The following account was submitted to the curators of the Paranormal Scholar website by Stacy C. on behalf of her uncle Bob R. My uncle Bob was in the Army. Last Thanksgiving, he got drunk and told us all a story that shocked me. It was around 1985, and he was still new to the Army, only being about three years in. He was on patrol duty on a base in Arizona. It was late, and he and another guy were walking along the fence line. Bob and the other guy were focused on looking out beyond the fence, outside the base, when they heard a sound behind them. The sound came from the inside, from their side of the fence. When they turned around, they saw an old man dressed in buckskin with long hair and braids. Bob described it as being so gray that it almost glowed in the moonlight. The man was standing approximately 30 feet behind them. Both men drew their weapons as the old man was in a restricted area with warning signs all over the place. They could have shot him if they'd wanted to, but neither my Uncle Bob nor his buddy wanted to shoot an old man. They figured that he must have Alzheimer's and had wandered into the base or something. After all, he wasn't threatening them and he appeared harmless. The men shouted to the old man, telling him he was in a restricted area and that he needed to put his hands in the air. Bob thought they'd walk him back to post and then call the local police department, who would be able to get him back home. Bob tried to call in a report, but it was just static. Asking his friend to help, both he and Bob turned to tinker with the radio. Although they only looked away for half a second, to quote my uncle, when they turned back, the old man was gone. In his place was a massive rabbit, just sitting there watching them. That's what he said, that when he and his partner looked back up, the man had disappeared, and there was this large rabbit sitting in his place. Both men looked around, right to left, and back again to see where the old man had wandered off to, but he was nowhere to be seen. In that time, the rabbit took off towards the fence. Then again, they heard a noise behind them, and when they turned around, the same as last time, the old man was there. This time, however, he was now on the outside of the fence. The fence was a good 8 to 10 feet tall. There was no way this old man could have jumped it. Bob described how that sent him and his buddy off running. And they agreed not to tell their commander. Keep in mind that my uncle was drunk, but despite over 30 years having passed since that night, he still looks scared as hell when he told us that he had seen a skinwalker. Although Stacy doesn't mention the name of the base where her uncle's story took place, I was curious if the base in question might be rather obvious. Arizona has several military bases, three of which are Army. Yuma Proving Grounds on the western border with California, Fort Huachuca near the southern border with Mexico, and Camp Navajo, which is up north near Flagstaff. Why do I have a sneaking suspicion that her uncle was stationed 
at the third one. The base was formerly named Navajo Army Depot in the early 80s and was and is still used as a munitions storage facility. Definitely seems like the kind of base that would call for routine perimeter fence patrols to ensure that no one unauthorized is entering into the base to steal something or cause damage. And as the name would indicate, the land it occupies lies very close to what remains of the Navajo's land and was undoubtedly occupied by the Navajo people in previous generations. Skinwalker Guns The following story comes from an unnamed Marine who spent time training in a desert wasteland that is otherwise known as Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton in Southern California. He submitted this story to Nick Orton, who runs the Tales from the Grid Square project. I've personally spent quite a bit of time roaming the desert on that base, both day and night. Plenty of wild animals that a Marine can run across at any time. There's rabbits, mice, deer, skunks, coyotes, a few bobcats, quail, roadrunners, hawks, owls, and the more dangerous animals like the odd buffalo, rattlesnakes coiled around the base of shrubs, and even one marine in my group that was stalked during a nightland navigation course by a mountain lion. I've otherwise had my share of strange hallucinations out there, probably due to sleep deprivation and the mesmerizing effect of the green-tinted night vision goggles. But to my knowledge, I'm the only one who saw those things. Whatever this marine and his buddies saw would arguably creep anybody out. He writes, My squad's name is Skinwalkers, and there's a story behind it. A little over a year ago, we had a division-level exercise called Steel Knight. My gun squad was attached to a platoon in a defense position above the Camp Horno combat town. While we were out there, one of my buddies told me how he had seen this skinwalker when he was younger. It creeped us all out when he said it was still following him to this day. We only had one boot in our squad, a Marine just out of boot camp, I mean. So me and my buddy took an hour of gun watch so my boot could get a little sleep. But instead of sleeping, it's 30 minutes into this watch shift, so maybe around 0130, give or take. And this boot keeps saying he's hearing weird noises like the sound that the predator makes, but says it sounds faster and louder. My other buddy that told us he had seen a skinwalker when he was younger, he then tells us that the one he saw made that same noise. So that freaks us out, and we get real quiet and start listening for whatever this noise is. Sure enough, we hear it, this strange sound, along with a screech and rustling in the brush that's coming from down the front side of the hill. We had a 13 Golf on the gun, which is a thermal optic, and I looked down the hill and saw this deer-looking thing. But it was standing on two legs. As soon as I caught sight of it, it then ran straight up the hill past our defense on the right flank. And then it dropped back down on all four legs and disappeared down the back side of this hill. My buddy Rick had a Skeeter, which is another type of thermal, and he saw that thing too. Since then, we came up with the name Skinwalker Guns, since we just say that's what it was and embrace it. And that's how our squad name came to be.
Face off against the ultimate threat in single player. Settle old scores on 16 iconic maps in multiplayer. And survive the hordes in a co-op open world zombies experience. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. Available now. Now, I'm not one to knock a good story, but I have seen deer stand up on their hind legs and walk. Usually when two bucks are fighting or some other instance where one deer is showing signs of aggression, possibly trying to reach the lower branches of a tree to eat the leaves. I've never seen one that made predator noises run up a hill before, nor did I see it through thermals in the dead of night after one of my buddies had just told me a skinwalker story. All of that happening at the same time would make for a creepy experience in any case. But the following stories are not so easy to offer a rational explanation for. Hello. Tries to break right towards the nose of the plane and not jump. Uh -huh. So, Jump Master sees him going right and says, Nope. He, re he reaches up, he grabs the overhead, and then... Donkey kicks his ass right out the door. Dude, I got I got out right after him, and he is screaming. What? Blue blazes. That line sounds a hell of a lot more like a woman. This next account comes from an unnamed soldier who is likely a member of the California National Guard and was serving on a security detail during a massive wildfire. The Dixie Fire of 2021 was the single largest wildfire recorded in California history. It burned nearly a million acres of land and destroyed multiple communities in the area. And with the rapid spread and size of the growing fire, it would seem the California Guard was assisting local authorities in blocking roads preventing civilians from driving into areas that were burning or were in the direct path of the fire. The fire undoubtedly disrupted a vast amount of wildlife in the area. But for this soldier and his group, they appear to have encountered something in the forest that was in and of itself disturbing. He writes, This happened during the 2021 Dixie Fire in North Cal. My lieutenant... Our driver, PFC Bravo, and myself were driving around, making the rounds, and checking on all our guys out at their checkpoints. We got to one where our guys were blocking a road, and they had one of those generator lights. So we stopped for a bit, and we're all just standing around talking and making conversation, when we started hearing a woman screaming. It startled the hell out of all six of us. My LT and I ready up our weapons as we take a few steps towards the wood line. We had been told that if we hear a woman screaming, it's usually a mountain lion attacking a deer or something like that. But this sounded close. And honestly, it just sounded too much like a woman screaming. So my LT yells out, Hello? And I shit you not, in his same exact voice, we hear back, Hello? What the hell? Everybody back in the trucks. This wasn't an echo at all. It came clear as day from the direction we heard the screaming, and it was his exact voice. We all immediately said, screw that. My crew and I got back in the truck and noped the hell out of there after telling Specialist Sierra and his crew to stay in the truck and to combat lock all their doors. 
Pretty sure a skinwalker was out there trying to get one of us. Creepy as hell. As I mentioned earlier, these last few stories were shared with me by Nick Orton, a man who is currently serving in the U.S. Army and has dedicated much of his free time to gathering these kinds of short and often spine-chilling stories from his fellow service members and veterans. If you haven't checked out his work yet, you are missing out on some creepy and fascinating stuff. And heads up, he's got a second book out now, Tales from the Grid Square, Volume 2. Combined, these two books account for nearly seeing terrifying things in the woods. I'm an MP at Quantico, and there's definitely been a couple of weird things I've seen on nights patrolling Westside. So I've been at Quantico for about two years as an MP. For those that don't know about Quantico, it's set up with two sides. Main side, where everything is, east of Interstate 95, and the appropriately named West Side, where they do TBS, the basic school for officers, and all the ranges. West Side is pretty damn massive, like... I'm talking it would take two to three hours to drive around it, and it has all of these unused back roads and... ...old cemeteries from homesteads dotting the landscape. Plenty of forgotten training areas, too, dating back to World War II. When I was on night shift, I always asked to be the roving unit out there, because it would give me a chance to scout out places to hunt or fish on my off days, and being the only unit out there and being left alone was pretty nice to just skate or, you know, do my own thing over my 10-hour shift. Now, I'm not a stranger to the woods or to the outdoors or anything. I grew up running around the mountains for quail and deer in Southern California as a kid, and spent a ton of nights out camping by myself in my teens. So there's really not much out there in nature that freaks me out. But one night, in about November, when the nights get really dark real fast, I was done posting Marines out on the gates and was heading up to a far-off training area. I had my tree stand and trail camera that I'd previously set up and wanted to go take a look to see if anything had been around. To get there, you have to drive about 30 minutes up one road and then another 15 until you hit a long dirt road that dissects that part of the base in half. And in this particular area, comms always sucks. So without a working radio, you're pretty much out there on your own. I parked my Durango on the offshoot. I grabbed my flashlight and started off heading into this creek bottom about a mile or so off the road. I've done this a ton of times, so I got there pretty fast. I grab the chip out of my trail cam, and I hop up into my tree stand to take a look at it and to kill some time. And not even five minutes into flipping through pictures, most of which were of just some turkey that were hanging around, I hear someone, and I say someone because I thought it was a person, walking through the woods about 30 yards in front of me. Now this is like the middle of the night on a training base, so a lieutenant who got lost doing night land nav isn't out of the question. So I'm 
thinking, maybe this is my chance to mess with them from up in my stand. So I quickly close my laptop and I turn off my flashlight and I, I try looking out to see where they were. And I hear them walk closer and closer and then stop about 20 yards in front of me. And at that point, with the loom being fairly bright that night, I could make out the outline of what looked like a deer, which was kind of disappointing. So I just stayed quiet to watch where he was heading so I wouldn't spook him. And all of a sudden, this thing starts bashing its head against a tree over and over and over and over until its entire skull cap was crushed and it was leaking blood and brain matter. Then this effing thing stands up on its hind legs and turns towards me as though it was staring directly at me, even with its eyes being clearly now useless. And then it spoke in the clearest tone I have ever heard in my life. I know you're in here. My stomach dropped. And I, I was too frozen in fear to even think to draw my pistol. But then, as quickly as it had walked up, this thing dropped back down onto all fours and walked away. I waited about 10 minutes, shaking like a leaf, trying to calm down before I, I left my laptop. I left everything. I just hauled ass out of there, got out of my stand, ran back to my patrol car, and I grabbed my shotgun, and I sat for the rest of the night in the lit parking lot of the MCX. about a month before I summoned up the courage to go back uh, grab my laptop and stuff I'd left there and I went with a friend who I didn't tell what had happened but I told him to bring his long gun as well when I got there I grabbed my stuff and I looked towards where the thing had been and the tree was busted up with splinters everywhere and what looked like you know the bone fragments and and the mess, the blood, scattered on the ground. Needless to say, I don't go out checking stuff in the middle of the night anymore. And I hunt on the complete opposite side of the base. And anytime I do need to go by there now, I always take a shotgun in condition one. I told my Navajo grandpa about this. And he told me not to speak about it, but clearly, uh, I don't listen well. It, it freaked the hell out of me. Got me so messed up to the point where I really... I don't even like going in the woods anymore. As I say, I've seen deer do strange things, but talk... While the idea seems completely ludicrous, Navajo legend does say that skinwalkers possess the ability to enter a person's mind and make them hear and see things 
that aren't really there. So, perhaps, the voice he heard was only inside his own mind. It's no less terrifying either way. As for the animal's strange behavior, if it indeed was just an animal, I found at least one more account online where a young man recalled seeing this kind of behavior while hunting with his grandfather. No idea where it took place, but the two men apparently watched a deer slam its head repeatedly into a rock until its antlers and skull were shattered. The animal then clumsily licking its own brain matter off of the rock before standing upright like a human, he said, and then walking into the nearby river and drowning itself. Both the young man and his grandfather were also terrified by the experience. It likewise kept them from wanting to return to the woods. And quite strangely, the story ends with the young man saying his grandfather moved to Florida shortly afterward for what he put in quotes as safety reasons. He makes no mention about having any suspicions about what this animal was other than just being a deer, acting strangely, but it does make you wonder what about the animal's behavior by itself would have scared them so badly. Strange as it may seem, these are only a handful of the available skinwalker stories we have left to share. It would seem another particular Marine Corps installation in California likewise has no small amount of reported encounters with strange creatures roaming the desert backlands. And with all of the artifacts that have been found in the area, it would seem that the installation, 29 Palms, appears to have been built on what was once tribal land, a place where native people once undoubtedly lived and died, and quite possibly practiced dark magic. American men and their allies fighting in the jungles of Southeast Asia, encounters with tigers, poisonous reptiles, and massive insects, not to mention enemy soldiers and booby traps, these would certainly have been enough to deal with. But alongside these more conventional threats, soldiers returning from the jungles of Vietnam appear to have encountered something else. Strange creatures which defy rational explanation the devil creatures of Quang Bin. The mist which hangs before you offers you a choice to pass through or to escape. Beyond it are stories which defy explanation and fly in the face of what we know to be real. It is a void of both reality and impossibility of both fact and superstition. You alone are left to discern what to believe 
as you pass through what we call the fog element of American soldiers had been inserted by helicopter into enemy territory north of the DMZ to conduct several days of search and destroy operations against the North Vietnamese army. As their column formation slowly wound its way through the dark jungle, the point man at the front of the patrol suddenly stopped, throwing up his fist and quickly signaling to the men behind him to take a knee. He then ran his hand repeatedly across his throat, possible enemy soldiers ahead, he was saying. Looking back towards the movement he had spotted, the men tried to make out anything that would identify the unknown threat, what appeared to be a group of four men walking in single file through the jungle. It was difficult to see them clearly, as the thick jungle was hiding both groups from each other, but the soft moonlight coming through the canopy above is what gave these four men away, as they otherwise appeared to be moving soundlessly. These men were clearly experts at moving quietly through dense jungle, possibly a team of NBA sappers. After a moment, the American soldiers close enough to see them realized they couldn't make out any weapons or anything that looked like a military uniform. What they thought might be helmets were in fact the tops of these men's heads, as if they were all bald, with the moonlight through the canopy reflecting the hairless outlines of their skulls. But... Was that moonlight? Squinting through the trees, the soldiers could swear that these men were glowing, as if they themselves were emitting a soft aura of light. And whatever they were wearing was smooth and highly reflective and dazzling, as if they were wearing tight clothing made from snakeskin. But no. On second glance, the soldiers were shocked to realize it was their skin. Scaly reptilian skin and far from being North Vietnamese soldiers whose average height was somewhere around five and a half feet tall these men, these things all four of them appeared to stand at least seven feet tall entirely uncertain of what they were even looking at, the men at the head of their formation said nothing, holding their breath waiting for something to happen Either unaware of the American platoon's presence or choosing to ignore them entirely, these four beings kept silently walking by them until they eventually just disappeared into the jungle. With no reason to pursue them, the soldiers waited for the all-clear before standing up. The point man checked his compass, and they continued their own patrol, never catching sight of the strange creatures again. But another patrol evidently did. Mac, go ahead and shut her off. Williams. Yes, sir. Sun will be up soon. Go ahead and cut the engines. We'll uh, drift with the current for a while. You got it. 
Throughout the war, American teams were deployed deep behind enemy lines in the conduct of guerrilla warfare, hoping to cut off the enemy supply lines to stop the harassment of locals and to destroy any hidden bases and weapon depots they might find. A two-boat team of eight soldiers has likewise been inserted on a search-and-destroy mission, cruising in their patrol boats along a river just north of the DMZ, their mission lasting throughout the night and into the early morning hours. At the onset of these night missions, a curfew had been implemented. Locals had been warned to remain at home since the men had trouble seeing in the dark, and the standard procedure for these missions was to fire on anything that moved, with the presumption being that anyone caught out at night, whether on the river or in the jungle, would be an enemy soldier. Enemy fire could break out from the shoreline at any time without warning, so the men were on constant guard, their eyes warily scanning the riverbank for any sign of movement or other indication of enemy presence. But now that the sun was coming up and visibility was improving, these men would have to begin operating under more restrictive guidelines for firing on unknown targets. This might explain why, for some unknown reason, the patrol officer ordered the boats to the shoreline to conduct a short reconnaissance patrol away from the river. After leaving the boats and passing through a section of trees, the men reached the edge of a large jungle clearing. Perhaps they wanted to mark the location as a possible drop zone for future patrol inserts or extractions by helicopter. Whatever their reasons, these men couldn't help but notice that this section of jungle was eerily quiet. They had long become accustomed to hearing the constant droning sounds of insects, monkeys, and birds. But now, this notable silence could mean the presence of human activity, possibly that of enemy soldiers. Perhaps that is what prompted their commander to conduct this investigation. Moving into the clearing in the dim light, at some point the team began noticing a number of piles of what appeared to be animal dung scattered around the area. As they momentarily paused to examine these unusual piles, they suddenly heard crashing sounds coming from the nearby tree line. They were shocked to see what appeared to be several large humanoid creatures lumbering out of the dense brush, heading straight for them. These things were unlike anything they'd ever seen, tall, at least seven or eight feet in height, with bright yellow skin and three-digit hands and feet, with fingers and toes that ended in sharp claws. The faces of these strange creatures were flat and sported large, snake-like eyes with only a couple of slits for a nose. The creatures were on top of them before they even had a chance to react. But surprisingly, these giant, yellow-skinned beings were said to have passed right by these men, seemingly not even paying attention to them at all, disappearing once again into the opposite tree line. Completely spooked by the encounter, the frightened soldiers decided to immediately return to their boats, but as they moved through the section of jungle between the clearing and the river, they once again heard the loud sounds of jungle brush being trampled behind them. Whatever the creatures were, they were now following them. The men broke into a run themselves, their own loud movements now adding to the noise of the crashing sounds behind them, which indicated the creatures were drawing closer and closer. Some of the men aimed their rifles behind them, firing blindly, but it seemed to have no effect on slowing down their pursuers. Terrified, bursting through the tree line and clambering into their boats on the riverbank, the men apparently continued to fire on these creatures, watching them twitch as the bullets seemed to bounce off of their hard, scaly skin. Confused and likely terrified themselves at the sight of these monsters, the coxswains quickly pulled their crafts away from the riverbank and throttled them away. As they left, the men purportedly saw the haunting sight of dozens of these massive humanoids now gathered along the riverbank, watching them leave. 
The shoreline seemed to be illuminated by a powerful glow emanating from the creatures' bodies. This next encounter is told from the perspective of the soldier who shared the story. In 1970, I was serving as a corporal in the U.S. Army, deployed to South Vietnam in a region about 30 miles south of the DMZ. At the time, I was second in command of a squad of soldiers. We had set up a bivouac in a jungle area that had a few steep hills. That evening, my section was ordered to patrol one of the small valleys west of the encampment. We moved out, led by our sergeant. Not long after entering one of the small valleys, we detected movement ahead of us. It seemed to be scattered activity, so we doubted it was Viet Cong, but we weren't positive. We hunkered down for about 15 minutes, getting occasional glimpses of something moving within the trees and brush. There wasn't enough light to detect what we were observing, even though the moonlight was bright that night. After a while, the activity halted, so we continued to slowly move through the valley. About this time, things got very strange. As we approached a sheer rock wall on the side of a hill, it looked like someone, or something, had stacked large stones and boulders in the pass in front of us. There was also an opening in the hillside that looked like a cave entrance, approximately five foot high and three foot wide, narrowing at the top. While observing the passageway, it appeared to have been cut away by machinery. The edges were smooth, with small, even-spaced grooves. We were puzzled by this because we had never seen enemy caves like this, just underground tunnels. Our sergeant suggested that it might be a BC supply depot, so we started to assess how we were going to investigate the cave. We noticed a putrid odor emanating from the entrance. The only thing I can compare it to was rotting eggs and human decay. It was so revolting that a few of the soldiers were becoming ill and started to back away into the jungle, including our sergeant. I was directing a light into the entrance in order to observe anything, but there was a haze that was impossible to see through. We had no idea what this thing was. So the entire squad took a position in the heavy brush approximately 150 feet from the entrance, far enough not to be detected, but close enough to observe the cave entrance. We quietly remained there for what seemed like forever. The jungle was strangely calm, though we heard rumbling sounds coming from the distance. It was really eerie. Our sergeant was sitting near me, talking to himself. It was obvious that you know, he was frightened. I was looking at the rest of the squad. Each had wide eyes and was scanning the area. Tired as we were, it was clear that no one was going to doze off during this patrol. After several hours, dawn was approaching and it started to lighten up. I checked my watch. It was just before 0500 hours. Just then, we noticed movement in front of the cave. A being, I first thought it was a man, moved through the entrance into the clearing in front of the cave. As it stood up from a crouch, it stood at least seven feet high and started to look in our direction. At that time, another similar-looking creature was moving out of the cave. The only way I can describe these beings is that they looked like upright lizards. The scaly, shiny skin was very dark, almost black. Snake-like faces with forward-set eyes that were very large. They had, they had arms and legs like a human, but with scaly skin. I didn't notice a tail, though they wore long, 
one-piece dark green robes, along with a dark cap-like covering on their heads. I never noticed that they had anything on their feet. They were making these hellish hissing sounds and looking directly at us. No one gave the order. It seemed like the entire squad opened fire at once. Every piece of vegetation between us and them was quickly sheared away. I yelled out a ceasefire order. At the same time, I was looking in the direction of the cave. There was nothing there. We immediately checked our flank in case these things circled around us, but there was nothing. As we approached the cave, ready to resume action if needed, it became apparent that the beings had escaped, most likely back into the cave. It was soon decided to set charges and close the cave entrance. When we returned to camp, we all seemed to be in a daze. There was little discussion of the incident, and we were never debriefed. So I know the sergeant never filed a report. Then again, if he did, it was kept quiet by the brass. Researching these stories, it is uncommon to find all three of them told in conjunction with one another. So saying, with the assertion being that these stories originated from three separate men who served in Vietnam, the similarities between their stories are seemingly remarkable. But these American servicemen are purportedly not alone in their experiences. Ho Khan is a Vietnamese logger born in the rural hills of Phong Nha. He lost his father during the war. To provide for his family, Ho then spent much of his life foraging for valuable wood in the surrounding jungles, wood that is used for incense, herbal remedies, and other medicines. In December of 1990, while out foraging for agarwood in the jungle, a sudden cloudburst forced him to seek shelter. He then stumbled upon an opening in a limestone cliff wall. It was a cave, a massive cave. He could hear the sounds of a river raging somewhere inside the cave, and even saw clouds billowing out of the entrance. When he later showed his discovery to British cave explorers, this cave would come to be known as Hung Son Dung, or the Mountain River Cave. In 2009, it was declared to be the world's largest cave, extending deep into the mountains, a length of more than nine kilometers, or more than five and a half miles. The average height of the cave is 200 meters, 660 feet. Its average width, about 75% of that. It's so outrageously massive, it's been found to have its own ecosystem, with breakages in parts of the cave ceiling, allowing for sunlight to shine through, leading to the growth of entire jungles inside the cave. Within these hard-to-reach jungles have been found species of endangered tigers, flying foxes, and rare primates. It's practically a lost world, thriving just beneath the surface of the earth. The cave was open for tourism in 2013. In 2015, a video was posted online that asserted that, presumably while exploring the cave after his early discovery, Ho Khan had encountered what he described as a devil creature. This creature, this video stated, had a human body, but with the skin and facial structure closer to that of a dragon or lizard. In addition to this description, Ho is claimed to have inadvertently taken a Polaroid photo of the creature while attempting to photograph one of the dark cave tunnels. 
In this photo, something like a humanoid creature does appear to be watching him curiously around the far bend in the passage, its body largely concealed in the dark. It's hard to make heads or tails of it, but what is seen is suggested to be distinctive facial features, the eyes and mouth of the creature being the only things captured by the camera's flash. However, this video was the first uploaded by the creator when he started his channel, and it does seem to be the original and only online source of this photo and its connection to Hokan and the Sundong Cave. As far as credibility, unfortunately it does not seem that the video's creator offered any indication of where he found the photo or any evidence that Hokan took the photo himself or that he ever claimed to have encountered reptilian humanoids. There are also claims circulating online forums that tourists to the cave have reported strange sightings of these creatures, with one tourist said to have gone missing, presumed to have been abducted by them. But again, these claims can only be traced back to the same video, where the photo originated from. The creator posted two more paranormal videos following this one, and his account has since remained inactive for the last seven years. So, as far as proving the validity of this photo being taken by Ho Khan in a cave in Vietnam, or even being an original unaltered photo, we are left empty-handed. As of 2022, even ancient aliens picked up on the strange similarities between all of these encounters and did an episode on the Sundong Cave and the humanoid creatures. In their coverage of the events, they are also unfortunately somewhat vague in their claims that local residents describe seeing reptilian-type humanoid beings emerging from the cave. One can only assume they are likewise parroting the same information offered by this single YouTube video from 2015. Considering how difficult it was for Ho to find the cave, it begs the question at what point in time and how many locals took the time to visit the cave and happened upon these strange creatures before the chartered tourist groups began arriving in 2013. And without any indication that anyone from the Ancient Aliens team has actually interviewed the Vietnamese locals or even Ho Khan himself about his supposed encounter with these creatures, any reports about these creatures in relation to the Sondong Cave and Ho Khan remain questionable. As for the soldiers' stories, only two of them appear to have known sources. Paranormal show host Art Bell covered the Riverside encounter during a live broadcast of his coast-to-coast -coast radio program sometime in either the early 90s or early 2000s. The third encounter, involving the creatures emerging from a cave, was submitted to paranormal researcher Lon Strickler in 2015, which he then published to his online blog. The story was provided to him by a U.S. soldier who served in Vietnam and continued his military service after the war. Lon assured his readers that the man had provided references for his identification, which both checked out. Lon confirmed that not only had this man served in the army, but that he had led a distinguished and admirable career before retiring. At minimum, wherever they are presented, all three of these stories are given the authority of at least having originated from an actual service member who fought in Vietnam, as opposed to the stories being works of pure fiction. As to their reasons for remaining anonymous, it goes without saying. Even a small amount of military experience and the understandable expectation they would have had of being labeled as unhinged would offer us plenty of insight into their motivations. It should also be said that many of these men returned home from a war, physically and psychologically injured, 
only to find themselves the target of political animus. Instead of a welcome home, they found themselves hated and despised by many of their own countrymen, serving a prison sentence for dodging the draft or being called a baby killer for choosing to serve their country with honor. Those were the choices our society offered them. Not exactly a warm environment which would have encouraged our boys to tell these more bizarre stories with any confidence. What can be said of the reported military encounters with these creatures in the 1970s is that the location and timing of each encounter is somewhat consistent. All three of the encounters are presented as occurring in close proximity to the dividing border between North and South Vietnam in the province of Quang Binh. Even the Sondong Cave is located in the same province, 70 kilometers or 43 miles north of the DMZ. So that entire mountainous area could be hiding any number of undiscovered cave systems. All of the encounters were reported as taking place at night, possibly in the early morning before sunrise, or otherwise near caves, indicating that these creatures would likely be nocturnal and that their eyesight is well adapted to darkness, an ideal adaptation for cave dwelling. With the exception of skin color, bioluminescence, and the wearing of clothing, the physical descriptions given for these strange creatures and their behavior likewise appear similar across all three accounts. But if they exist, where might they be hiding now? Like the deepest parts of our oceans, the sprawling, massive jungles of Southeast Asia where these events are said to have happened, these jungles remain largely unexplored. And it's no wonder why. The soldiers who fought there will tell you themselves. The terrain is difficult to traverse. Steep, cragged mountains with sheer drops leading down to muddy jungle basins. Not to mention dealing with the biting insects, poisonous snakes, and other unpleasant animals. In any case, it would hardly be feasible to explore these regions by any means other than on foot or by aircraft. And the U.S. military's prolific use of toxic herbicides during the war points to the obvious problem with aircraft. The thick canopy of trees makes it impossible to see what might be moving along the jungle floor anyway, whether enemy soldiers or something else. Humans have lived in that region for tens of thousands of years. The Sondong cave system has existed for millions of years, and yet its discovery was only recently documented. If not someone like Ho Khan earning an honest living by scouring the jungles for valuable wood, there's nothing else of value anyone wants to go looking for, at least nothing that's worth the trouble. And even Ho likely doesn't explore beyond a certain distance from his home. So if we were hoping for new evidence, we may never get it. If the Vietnamese locals remain content to explore only a short distance from their villages, the depths of these jungles will continue to remain a mystery. Still, without venturing into the realms of alien conspiracy or interdimensional travel, the idea of intelligent humanoid reptiles having evolved alongside mankind would understandably seem ludicrous. So perhaps the only logical theory we might have is that because of the war, military action in these heavily forested regions is what finally exposed mankind to these strange and elusive creatures. Or perhaps these soldiers were not the first humans to encounter them, but only the first in a very long time. And then there were the earthquakes. American soldiers watched their morning coffee being stirred by the massive impacts of distant bombs, while the Viet Cong hunkered down on their tunnels were praying they wouldn't be crushed to death, while the earth was shaking violently around them. Certainly, any undiscovered animal might have been stirred momentarily out of its cave by these widespread bombing campaigns. And once the war ended and the bombing stopped, the men returned home, and the creatures returned to their quiet solitude. 
As far as their strange appearance goes, by comparison, it does seem that the deeper we have ventured away from the ocean's surface, the stranger the fish get, and the longer they can live. Some species of fish even produce their own ambient light, having adapted in an environment of complete darkness. And surviving in the depths of the ocean, we've documented species of even complex animals, whales and sharks, that can live for more than 400 years. Perhaps the same is true in dark jungles and massive unexplored cave systems. The deeper you go, the weirder it gets. And perhaps it just takes a war to draw them out of hiding. of how anyone feels about it, the United States government is rather big at keeping secrets. Sometimes these secrets are intended to protect the American public and its interests. In any case, there are certainly many things that the government is involved with that are never intended to be made known to the general public. As a soldier in the U.S. Army, I would come to discover that being in the military puts a man that much closer stumbling across something that he was never supposed to. This is part two of the story of the night shift at Fort Campbell. The mist which hangs before you offers you a choice to pass through or to escape. Beyond it are stories which defy explanation fly in the face of what we know to be real. You're moving into a realm of both reality and imagination, of both fact and fiction. Many will fall prey to the obvious lies, and many more will reject the truth when they cannot accept it. You alone are left to discern what to believe as you pass through what we call the fog of war. My days and nights while stationed at Fort Campbell were a great time for me. To say the very least, those 23 months were the most interesting part of my life. I say interesting because although my primary occupation was in communications, I was temporarily transferred to the military police division to work as a security guard. Since fixing broken antennas, radios, and other comm gear was far from exciting, I very much enjoyed doing those daytime and nighttime security patrols along the mostly quiet back roads and secluded areas in and around the large base. However, I did have more than a couple, what I would call, strange encounters during the conduct of these patrols. One of these encounters wasn't anything you might consider highly unusual. Or maybe it was. I mean no disrespect by saying that I am well aware that our government has plenty of secrets. The world is full of unseen dangers, and there are, of course, some things that are best kept under wraps in the interest of protecting not only Americans, but those countries with which we are allies. I'll give you an example. One of the biggest secrets maintained by the United States government was to conceal an entire American city 
from the outside world, even from fellow Americans. Radios and other comp gear was. The U.S. government built the entire city of Oak Ridge in just a matter of months, back in the 1940s. It was intentionally hidden, tucked away inside 60,000 acres of land, purchased in the undeveloped and isolated backwoods of Tennessee. The entire city, everything right down to the city streets, stoplights, and sewers, was planned and constructed by the U.S. government to house one specific group of people. These were the tens of thousands of civilian personnel, along with their families, who were secretly relocated at Oak Ridge to accomplish one goal, to acquire and prepare the materials needed to manufacture a newly developed atomic bomb. The year was 1942. The A-bomb was a new wonder weapon of mass destruction, and it was going to end the war, if not tragically. During World War II, the city of Oak Ridge was a vital part of the then top-secret Manhattan Project. As such, its very existence was kept hidden from the outside world. It wasn't even listed on maps for several years, not until after the war was over. Now, imagine how hard it is to keep an entire city a secret like that. What would happen, hypothetically, if some random hiker got lost and stumbled into the town? I have no idea. But if a private citizen learns about a government secret like that, it's probably a big surprise for him. A person might have a hard time keeping quiet about it. And if a secret that big gets out, the rest of the world would soon know everything about it. You can only imagine the potential consequences of Oak Ridge being discovered, the damage to the Manhattan Project, and the impact it would have had on the war. So you could probably also imagine the lengths to which the U.S. government went to keep it from being discovered. Let's just say I personally wouldn't want to be that random hacker. But unlike a civilian, a person in the military, like myself, happens to stumble across something top secret, they at least understand it could be damaging to national security, and certainly to their own career, to talk about it. So they're more inclined not to do so. Again, I tell you this because when I was in the Army, stationed on Fort Campbell, there was a time when I thought me and my buddy, whom I'll just identify as Corporal Lack, might have stumbled across something like that, something that we weren't supposed to have seen. Now, something you should know about Lack. Overall, he was a good soldier, professional, easygoing, and he had a good sense of humor when it was appropriate. You pretty much couldn't help but like him. But Lack also had a habit of being a little too serious at times. And one night in February of 1988, it put both of us in a very bad position. Nearly got both of us killed. Send it. What's your current location? One cold night in February, while we were conducting our routine patrol around Fort Campbell, Lack and I received an unexpected radio call. Our dispatch informed us that they'd been contacted by the nearby dispatch center, Clarksville Police Department, because they'd received a 911 call about a possible crash of a small civilian plane, someone having spotted it flying low over the base's southern fence line. Since the caller said they thought that the plane had crashed on the base, the local civilian police couldn't conduct the initial investigation. So they called the base police. 
Black and I were patrolling in that general vicinity of the base, so we were assigned to search the area where the caller believed the plane may have gone down. We were somewhat skeptical. Planes don't exactly crash every day. So as we drove around the area, we didn't really expect to find anything. This area of the base was less heavily forested, having some open patches of land scattered alongside the roads. After a bit of slow driving in the dark, shining the truck's spotlights along the tree lines as we went, we suddenly saw what indeed appeared to be a crash site in one of the open fields. Getting out of the truck with our flashlights, we walked quickly, although very carefully, towards the wreckage, shining our lights around, trying not to step on any of the countless pieces of wreckage and debris. In hindsight, I maybe should have radioed our dispatch right away before leaving the truck to confirm that we had found a downed aircraft. But in the heavy darkness, I suppose we were curious and wanted to confirm what it was before reporting it, as well as to check for survivors in need of help. The pile of wreckage was billowing some steam, which was quite visible in the beams of our flashlights. The main fuselage lay among scattered debris, sitting in the middle of the field, about 75 yards from the road, about the same distance from the tree line behind it. As we got closer to the main body of the aircraft, we were shocked to realize that these were not the remains of a civilian plane. It was one of our own Apache attack helicopters, or rather, it was what was left of one. Unable to detect the smell of spilled fuel or seeing any indication it might catch fire, we kept approaching it, hoping again to first check for any survivors, although the general appearance of the crash site didn't seem hopeful. The ground showed a significant crater at its initial point of impact. Pieces of the helicopter were clearly buried in it, with a length of other impact points and bits of debris strewn along the ground in front of it, a number of detached rockets also laying scattered around the clearing. These additional craters indicated that it had likely bounced after its first impact, and then flipping or rolling a number of times before coming to a stop. Now the broken and twisted heap of metal that lay before us. Scanning the tree line behind it with our flashlights, there was a section of trees whose tops were noticeably damaged. Considering the 911 call about a low-flying aircraft, we figured that the helicopter must have clipped the treetops at a fast speed, which caused it to crash as hard and as abruptly as it did pilot probably had little or no time to react. The damage to the Apache, including its cockpit, was extensive. Seeing this, we knew then that there was little chance of either of the two pilots having survived. I told Lack to check the cockpit anyway before I jogged back to our truck, carefully avoiding the debris so I could radio back a report on the crash. And that was when this strange situation got even stranger. Wartime stories will continue right after this. And now, back to the story. Bravo 47 calling command. Come in over. Command of Bravo 47. Go ahead. We are currently at. What the hell? Command, this is Bravo 47. You read me? Huh. Well, that's weird. 
Command, this is Bravo 47. Command, over. Right after my dispatch acknowledged my call in, my transmission was suddenly drowned out by some kind of radio interference. A distinct electronic hum was the only thing I could hear. I clicked through the radio, trying a few other channels, but the same interference seemed to be preventing me from transmitting on those as well. Being my primary MOS was communications, I suspected, shall I say strongly suspected, that this wasn't just some kind of random interference with our radio. I had certainly never heard it before. I knew enough about radio signals to know when something strange was happening. Here, I'll give you an example. If you're ever driving down the road and listening to your car's radio, specifically AM radio, and you pass by some overhead power lines, you'll notice the radio signal will often either get fuzzy or be completely drowned out by static. That interference is caused by the electromagnetic energy coming off the high-voltage power lines. However, out here in this empty field on Fort Campbell, there were no power lines or any other reasons for this kind of sudden, very powerful radio interference. I had no idea why, but it seemed very possible that the designated radio frequencies we were using were intentionally being jammed all available channels, no less. Unable to send up a report, I impatiently tossed the radio handset onto the front seat. I then reached into the cargo area of the truck, grabbing a fire extinguisher, before jogging back over to the wreckage. Black was now standing right beside the airframe, staring at the pilot, who was still strapped into the rear seat, plainly visible through what little remained of the chopper's canopy. Starting to open my mouth, wanting to tell Lack about the issue with the radio, I suddenly stopped my attention being drawn back to the pilot. He wasn't wearing the right uniform. In my experience, American pilots would normally have worn an olive green one-piece zippered flight suit. This man was wearing something that looked much more like the older Vietnam era fatigues. OD green, with large buttons down the front of the blouse. A jacket. Shining my flashlight from various angles, looking for any other identifying markings, I then saw the patch of a foreign flag sewn onto his upper sleeve. My suspicions were confirmed. Having deployed to Central America myself, if only for a few weeks, I thought I had recognized the uniform he was wearing. A Honduran Army uniform. Very much out of place on someone piloting an American helicopter, I thought. He was wearing the right headgear, though, a pilot's helmet which was equipped with its rather obvious integrated night vision hardware and target acquisition display. He was also very clearly dead. No surprise to us, though. We figured there was little chance of either the pilot or the gunner having survived a crash this bad. The nose of the helicopter hadn't been practically obliterated on impact. The front part of the aircraft, where the gunner would have been seated, was just gone. If there had been two men in that helicopter, you wouldn't know it by looking at it. Looking back at Lack, who looked as confused as I was, I suddenly remembered the issue with the radio and told him about it. Not sure what else to do, we continued carefully walking around the wreckage, looking for anything else unusual while discussing what our best course of action was, what with not being able to communicate anything back to our command. Having a fire extinguisher on hand, we figured at least one of us should stay close to the wreckage in case it caught fire. Being able to stop a fire as soon as it started might help preserve something important for whoever would end up investigating the crash. Suddenly, 
We heard the sound of vehicles approaching, soon followed by headlights on a nearby road. Now, things got even stranger. Two Humvees and an M35 troop transport truck sped up to the clearing, stopping abruptly. A dozen or so soldiers wearing black uniforms, very unusual, quickly filed out of the back of the deuce. They swiftly approached the wreckage, scanning the area, the two of us included. Their M16s out and ready. Very odd behavior for investigating a crash site like this, I thought. Especially as they kept pointing loaded rifles at what were clearly two fellow soldiers. None of them wore any divisional insignia, nor had any name tags on their uniforms. They wore only a subdued patch of the American flag on their sleeve. One of them did have sergeant's bars on his collar, and another had a corporal's. But the others had no rank identifiers whatsoever. A colonel, a lieutenant colonel, and two majors then got out of the Humvees, identifiable by the rank they wore on their collars. But none of them had any divisional insignia or name tags either. As they approached us, still standing next to the wreckage, four soldiers from the larger group walked over and joined them. The colonel suddenly pointed at us and shouted, You will leave now. Remember when I said Lack had a bad habit of taking his job too seriously? Well, this is one of those times. He got, if you will, all formal and by the book. He firmly told the colonel that we were not leaving the area until we were properly relieved, according to the rules and regulations and all that. Well, the colonel was clearly not happy with his response. By the look on his face, his two-second fuse was already halfway burnt. Personally, I felt that the regulations on this were pretty clear and obvious. The colonel was very much our superior officer, and he'd given us direct orders to leave. I was fine with obeying those orders and leaving right then and there. But for the life of me, I don't know what Lack was thinking. And I certainly did not expect what happened next. The colonel turned to one of the blacked-out soldiers, the one wearing sergeant's bars, very clearly said, Sergeant, if they are not gone in 30 seconds, kill them. He then turned back to face Lack as he continued his instructions to the sergeant and dispose of their bodies along with that. He was pointing at the wrecked Apache. Sergeant No Name then stepped forward and brought his M16 up to shoulder, pointing it directly at Lack's chest. Now, I'm not a very good poker player, but I sure as hell know when I need to fold my hand and walk away from the table. I quickly turned and walked back towards our truck. I didn't say a word. I got into the driver's seat, started the engine, held my foot down on the brake, and put it in gear. I kept staring straight ahead at the road, praying that Lack would wise up and get in the damn truck. Thankfully, he was climbing into the passenger seat about three seconds later, having evidently changed his mindset. Keep my eyes straight ahead, I immediately drove us the hell out of there. Wartime stories will continue right after this. And now, the conclusion of our story.
Dispatch was calling us, asking if we were okay. As calmly as I could, I replied that we were fine. They asked what I had attempted to say in my initial radio transmission before the strange interference had started up. With some hesitation, I replied that we hadn't found anything yet and that we planned on continuing our search of the area. Several hours later, when we got back to the station at the end of our shift, our shift commander pulled us into his office. In what I thought was something of a tentative manner, he asked us if we had ended up finding anything during our search of the woods. As I have previously indicated, this wasn't my first rodeo. I've been down this road before, and I knew full well that silence is golden. Clearing my throat, looking first at Lack, then back at the shift commander, I quietly said that, no, sir. We hadn't seen anything out there. Nothing unusual to report. Lack seemed like he was about to say something, but then he simply nodded and said the same thing. Nothing unusual. We all just stood silently in his office for a moment. Commander seemed rather pleased by our replies. I could swear by the look of relief on his face, he knew more than what he was either willing or able to tell us. He then dismissed us, and I was very relieved to be dismissed. I left the station, and Black did too. I don't even think I stopped anywhere to get anything to eat on my way home. I simply drove back to my tiny base apartment and sat in the dark in my tiny living room. The night's events raced through my mind. I wondered why things like this had to happen to me. And I couldn't come up with an answer, so finally, We never heard anything about any civilian plane crash. I never asked anyone about it either. For a good number of years afterward, I would find myself lost in thought, wondering if that colonel was bluffing, or if he really would have had Lack and me killed if we had chosen not to leave the crash site. Some years beyond that, after I got married and started a family, now having my own children, I began to question what became of the bodies of the two men who died in that helicopter crash. Where were their final resting places? What were their families told? Or did their remains in that Apache helicopter simply vanish into the void of yet another classified government secret? As for why a Honduran soldier was sitting in the pilot seat, I may be able to offer you some amount of explanation. I would come to learn that at that time, the Apache was being used to secretly train foreign pilots to fly U.S. military helicopters, and for a specific reason. On March 17, 1988, only a month after the night we discovered that crashed Apache, thousands of U.S. military personnel, some from the 82nd Airborne Division, deployed into Honduras in support of Operation Golden Pheasant. As I have alluded to already, I was also deployed to Honduras, but that was in December of 1986, more than a year before this official operation began. My group was assisting with the construction of an airfield, likely to prepare for the upcoming airborne operations. Like the recent war in Vietnam, during my time in the 80s, 
U.S. international policy preventing the spread of communism was still in effect in Central America. As with local anti-communist groups who had fought in Vietnam, following an overthrow of the Nicaraguan government in 1979, the U.S. was now back in the anti-communists in Nicaragua. In this case, it was the Contras in their fight against the newly established Marxist and reportedly Soviet-funded government, the Sandinistas. Operation Golden Pheasant was billed as an emergency deployment readiness exercise, a simple joint training exercise between the U.S. and Honduran militaries. But our soldiers were evidently deployed ready to fight, not only to conduct training. The rumor was that the Sandinistas had been illegally operating in Honduras and that the American troops were sent to push them back out. However, Pentagon officials assured the public that our troops would be staying well away from the border, where the U.S.-backed Contra rebels had reportedly been fighting with the Sandinistas. Whatever the true events were, following this rapid deployment of U.S. troops into Honduras in March, the Sandinistas quickly withdrew, and the U.S. troops were pulled back out by the end of the month. Ultimately, though, the U.S. government's support and funding of the Contras was frowned on by many Americans. When it was discovered that the U.S. government had been covertly selling arms through Iran to bypass congressional approval, it sparked a rather nasty political controversy back in the late 80s. Such is the result of the uncovering of government and military secrets. With nothing else to go on, I'm not sure if this offers some explanation about that crashed helicopter we found, the Honduran pilot behind the stick, or the strange behavior of that colonel, his blacked-out soldiers, and even my own night shift commander. Well, what I do know is that I haven't told you everything. I still have a few strange stories left, one of which took place in late 1986, during those few short weeks I spent down in Honduras. The first, speaking about military aircraft falling out of the sky, I suppose I should tell you the most bizarre thing I saw during my time on Fort Campbell. I'm not sure if I should make a habit of adding short stories like this to the credits, so you guys go ahead and let me know what you think in the, in the comments. But since this episode involved 1986, and most of our combat engineering battalion had been deployed to the small Central American country of Honduras to construct a new airfield just north of the Rio Coco, a river which served as much of the official border between Honduras and Nicaragua. Although it was my first deployment outside of the U.S., I wasn't thrilled to be spending Christmas in the jungles of Central America, but being in the Army, missing holidays away from your family just goes with the job, I guess. That, along with some degree of risk, but far from what amount of danger I could have ever anticipated going into a combat zone, this lesser inhabited region of the Honduran jungle appeared to be harboring something far more frightening than a few socialist guerrilla fighters. The truth is, this is not a story I'm very excited to share with you. 
Because not only was it a terrifying experience, the way my command treated me afterwards is somewhat embarrassing. My name is Robert. I'm a U.S. Army veteran. And this is my story of an encounter I had with something they called El Diablo. The mist which hangs before you offers you a choice to pass through or to escape. Beyond it are stories which defy explanation and fly in the face of what we know to be real. It is a void of both reality and impossibility of both fact and superstition. You alone are left to discern what to believe as you pass through what we call fog. The 1980s was a turbulent time for Central America. The third world country of Nicaragua had suffered a major earthquake in 1971, followed by an economic collapse, extreme government corruption, and a violent political revolution. Similar to the recent war in Vietnam, there were two sides to this fight. The first being the Sandinistas, the socialist rebels who overthrew their corrupt government at the end of the 1970s and were ultimately being funded by the communist regimes of the Soviet Union and Cuba. The other side was the counter-revolutionaries, the Spanish term being Contras, who wanted to overthrow the now equally corrupt and violent Sandinista government. The Contras were being covertly funded by the U.S. in its effort to prevent the spread of communism into Central America, essentially making this another proxy war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Having been run out of their own country, the Contras had taken refuge north of the Nicaraguan border in Honduras. The U.S. was likewise providing support to the Honduran military, as the intense border fighting had created growing fears that a full-scale military incursion into Honduras could happen at any time. And that's where my unit came in, the 27th Airborne Engineering Battalion out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Our construction of an airfield near the village of Mastron would not only bring U.S. troops in and out of the country, but its location, only about 15 miles north of the country's border, sent a message to the Nicaraguan government. Stay on your side of the border if you know what's good for you. But although our units had been issued live ammunition, the U.S. wasn't officially at war with Nicaragua, so we couldn't go around shooting up the place. Our orders were that direct combat with Nicaraguan forces was expressly and officially forbidden, except if they fired first. So we were only authorized to return fire in self-defense. I'd say this was very similar to the beginning of the war in Vietnam. While some of our guys worked on building the airfield, a portion of our battalion, along with a unit of Honduran soldiers, had also been assigned to conduct highly visible border security patrols and surveillance operations to both discourage and monitor any potential enemy activity. Being a radio-slash-com guy, I didn't have much to do as far as working on the airstrip. Being from Tennessee, I could have driven a tractor if they'd asked me, but they just sent me out with the patrols most of the time. As far as keeping an eye out for enemy fighters, driving back and forth on the many winding dirt roads near the border really limited us to what we could see. 
So our patrols would also receive various reconnaissance reports from overhead aircraft and from the Sotokano Air Base, some 200 kilometers driving distance to the west. But it was rare that we ever got any actual real-time updates on enemy troop movements. More often than not, we'd receive reports of suspicious vehicles, boats, or groups of people sighted in close proximity to the river. So one morning, while my patrol unit was already out driving the roads, at about 10.30 hours, we received a radio communication that a small boat, or rather what might be a boat, was moving upstream a few miles away from our location. We were instructed to rendezvous at specific coordinates and then proceed on foot to the river's edge in hopes of being able to identify the type of craft that was moving upstream. Using our radios, we quickly coordinated with the other vehicles in our squad. We usually had either three or four of them and worked out the meetup location on our maps. Then we loaded up into our VIX and quickly sped down the dirt roads past the various village huts and local farms, trying to get to the river to find some good concealed positions before the boat passed by. This is Echo 4. Send it. Be advised, craft on the river support is moving erratically, changing direction and speed, as well as start and stop it. I'll copy over. Moving erratically. What the hell does that even mean? Uh, interrogative. Uh, any idea what it is? Over. Wait one. Over. Great. Now they got us chasing trash bags. Nah, I can't confirm. Report just says it's a wedge-shaped object, dark in color. Over. Are there even people on it? How big is it? Uh, how many tangos on board? Over. Uh, report doesn't say. Doesn't look like they can see any passengers. Over. Perfect. Roger that. Uh, we are nearing our insert point. Uh, we'll radio you once we get eyes on. Over. Uh, all right. Where am I going? Uh, you're going to turn right. Arriving to our rendezvous point, we hopped out of the trucks. Three squad members stayed behind to watch the vehicles, while the remaining six of us double-timed it down to the riverbank, which was about a half a mile away. This area wasn't as dense with jungle. Most of it was actually open grassland, so moving quickly through only light tree cover, we made pretty good time. We soon crossed onto a cattle farm and had to navigate across two sections of barbed wire fencing before we reached an open field. Like other areas in this region, this field had also been cleared of brush and overgrowth to allow cattle to have grazing opportunity. A hundred yards on the other side of the field was the river. We were able to find cover behind some trees, but most of the vegetation had also been cleared away along the riverbank, probably to give the cattle easier access to the water. So we moved across the field into the tree line, staying back about five to eight yards to remain out of sight of both the approaching boat and anyone that might be on the opposite side of the river, which was Nicaraguan territory. Come on, let's go. Take cover. Robert, Paolo, yes, sir. Come on, me. See. You stay here. Wallace, you go down that way. Roger. We couldn't see anything on the water upstream from us toward the west. Our last radio update confirmed that the boat hadn't passed by yet and was still moving in our direction. So, we waited. Should, uh, should be here in a few minutes. Uh, solo, unos minutos. Si, si, entiendo. Whiskey 4, should be coming from your direction. Let us know if you see it. No boat yet. Can you tell me what the hell just passed by me? Something big coming your way in the water. 
Roger. Yeah, I see something. A dark thing? Time stories will continue right after this. And now, back to the story. What the hell, man? Well, you were wrong about one thing, Sergeant. Huh? What's that? It sure as hell wasn't a trash bag. It, uh, it, it all happened very quickly. Once the snake had left the water, it just darted straight for a group of four cattle, rammed right into them with its head. It was so big, it just knocked three of them over. Considering how big it was, it was, it was fast. And just as the cattle started to panic, it darted towards the second group and rammed into them as well. And then it lifted its head off the ground, about the height of at least two men, maybe 10 to 15 feet. And after seeming to select which of the injured cattle it wanted, it just slammed its massive head down onto it, crushing it. I mean, I guess it was too big. I mean, it didn't need to constrict the animal. It just, we heard the sounds of the cow's body being crushed, like bones snapping. It probably killed it instantly. At that point, Wallace had raised his rifle. I can't blame him. But Sergeant Perez had signaled him to drop it immediately. Because, I mean, something that big, no doubt. Uh, our gunfire wouldn't have done anything but to just piss it off. I'm not sure how intelligent snakes are. Certainly not one that big. But I was fairly certain 
it had seen us before leaving the water, but it was clearly more interested in the cattle. And after crushing one of them to death, the snake just picked its head back up, opened its mouth, and, I mean, practically picked the entire cow up in its mouth, with the head dangling out of one side and the rear legs out of the other. It just, just carried it back into the water, just slid right back past us. Once it had gone, we just stood around quietly for a few moments, staring at the riverbank. My next thought was that I wanted nothing but to go back to the trucks and leave the country. Really, I couldn't, I mean, I could not have imagined that something like that could, could have possibly existed. What an absolute nightmare. But you know how guys are. A sick curiosity got the better of us, and we began discussing, arguing, really, about how big it had been. Nobody seemed to agree, with our estimates ranging from between 50 to 100 feet. So three of the guys decided to pace it out, walking the distance from the riverbank to where its head, where we remembered its head was, when the tail had left the water. 31 steps, 33 steps, and 34 steps. By our pace counts, we knew that roughly put its length at approximately 75 to 80 feet. The only cattle left in the pasture at this point were the injured ones, probably having had their legs broken. Someone mentioned that the snake might come back for them, so we agreed then that it was time to leave. On our way back to the trucks, I received a radio call asking if we had spotted the boat. Before responding, I first checked with Sergeant Perez. He said to tell them that we'd report what had happened after we got back to our vehicles. But when we did, and Sergeant Perez radioed back to Soto Cano, before he could finish his report of what had happened, he was interrupted. We were told then to maintain complete radio silence about the incident and were ordered to return to base immediately for debriefing and that we could each file individual reports when we got back to Sotokano. It was a long drive back, not only because of the distance, but I'd say we all seemed to have a sort of bad feeling about what was gonna happen when we got back to the base. The only reason we were being called back was clearly because of what Sergeant Perez had said before being interrupted in his radio report. Maybe they thought we were just screwing around on the radio, trying to be funny or something. When we arrived, we were met by a large group of uniformed men. A few were officers. The highest rank was a major. Two Hispanic men wearing Honduran army uniforms were also present, as was an apparent Honduran civilian. Sure enough, the major did not look happy. Neither did the three Hondurans. All of the other men just kept their bearing and seemed to avoid expressing any emotions. We'd all had ass chewings before, and by the concerned glances we then shot at each other, I'm pretty sure that's what we were expecting to get here. We were called out by name, and one at a time, taken away. When they called my name, I was led to a car and instructed to get in. A lieutenant and two enlisted men got in as well. All of this just felt very ominous. I was driven to 
well to the rear area of the base, the area furthest from the main runway. Not that it was that large of a base in the first place. And we stopped at a small nondescript building, which would actually describe most buildings there. And I was escorted inside. I was led down the main hall to a room at the end on the right. It was plain, nothing out of the ordinary, just some type of meeting room. But the room only had one door and no windows. And a light fixture holding a single bulb was mounted in the center of the ceiling. It was just a very appropriate setting for what was clearly going to be an interrogation, I thought. There was a table with chairs around it, and at the far end sat a different major. He likewise did not look very happy. The lieutenant instructed me to sit in the chair opposite the major. As I sat down, the other men sat down on each side of the table, and then no one spoke. Everyone just looked at me. I was wondering if I shouldn't say something, but it was the Major that spoke first. All right. What happened, soldier? Tell me everything. Well, sir, um, my patrol. As I recounted the story, the Major was very concerned with the details, from the time we'd left our vehicles until the time we'd returned to them later. I was instructed to leave nothing out. So I, I did as I was told and detailed everything I remembered. As I spoke, no one else said a word. No one moved. Hell, I don't even think anyone blinked. I finished recounting everything I'd recalled, and I glanced around at everyone in the room, just hoping for the best. Well, the Major's facial expression hadn't changed. He glanced towards the door behind me, or to someone standing behind me, and then back at me. Tell me what happened, son. Want to hear it all again? I think I missed something. For anyone who hasn't been in the military, or maybe the police, I, I had only been in the Army for two years at this point, but it was my experience that the senior enlisted guys, you know, the staff NCOs, were usually the ones to yell at you, you know, the ones that chew you out. But when a senior officer is acting like this, well, I, I hadn't done anything wrong, and I just didn't understand why they were treating me like this. You know, this major had a way of making me wonder if what I was saying was even true, even though I knew it was. It had literally happened just a few hours earlier. And now he was asking me to retell the whole story. And now I'm starting to wonder if he was trying to tell me to change my story, or that he knew something that I wasn't telling him? Or was this some kind of psychological pressure to try and get me to lie? And then if I lied, would they punish me? You know, they'd compare my story with the other guys. I, I couldn't think of anything else to say other than what I saw. So for a second time, I told him everything, exactly as it had happened. Again, no one else in the room spoke while I was talking. And there was complete silence when I finished. Major then leaned back in his chair, folding his arms, and I noticed he kept glancing at the door behind me, as did the other men in the room, as well as shooting glances across the table at each other. But they looked more worried. The Major just looked even more pissed. And once more, the Major repeated, Tell me what happened. I want to hear it all again. Sir? No, that's an order. Tell me what you saw. I was getting genuinely scared. And I still wasn't even sure if he believed anything I was saying. I almost wish 
We never said anything about the damn snake in the first place. But now that I was already here, I, I mean, I couldn't change my story. I mean, because then it wouldn't match up with what everyone else was saying. And I reasoned that this thing could pose a danger to our men, and they needed to know about it. So I repeated my story for a third time. This was followed by another long period of silence as the Major just continued to glare at me. He then stood up and walked out of the room, pulling the door shut behind himself. I could hear him talking loudly out in the hall with someone. I couldn't hear everything of what was being said, but I could tell it was him. He was speaking Spanish now, not fluently, but fairly well. He was clearly talking to a Honduran officer or other official of some sort. My Spanish wasn't any good, but I did catch things like Rio Coco, Agua, and Comer. Those were easy. Uh, water and eat. I thought maybe the other person was referring to the snake eating a cow, or maybe he meant that the snake could have eaten us. I don't know. I had some small hope that this whole interrogation had actually gone well, and I had been right not to change my story. Then I heard the Honduran officer say, El Diablo. I knew that meant the devil and then muertos, which I knew meant dead. Muertos was said a few times. The other person did most of the talking. The major just seemed to be responding most of the time by saying, see. I heard El Diablo mentioned several more times, wishing I knew more Spanish. And finally, the major came back into the room and he returned to his end of the table, but he didn't sit down. He stayed standing, leaning over the table and putting his hands down on it. And he began to talk. Boy, did he talk, loudly and angrily. Wartime stories will continue right after this. And now, the conclusion of our story. For the next 10 minutes or so, he let me have it. He told me that I was wrong everything that had happened. He said we'd only seen a large anaconda, maybe 20 feet long at most. He said that I'd been mistaken, and it was probably a dog that we'd seen in the serpent's mouth. He assured me that it was not a fully grown cow. He laughed at me for saying that we'd encountered a giant snake. He ridiculed me over everything I'd said. He accused me of fabricating the entire story. He said we hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary, nothing except probably a large clump of leaves and branches floating in the water. He accused me of telling a ridiculous story that would hurt the U.S.'s developing diplomatic relationship with Honduras. He informed me that if I continued to insist that the snake was over 75 feet long, that I would face consequences, adding that I could be charged with falsifying an official report, or worse. He never actually mentioned an Article 15 or court-martial, but I knew where he was going with what he was saying. I felt pretty terrible because I knew I was in no position to argue with him. And he made it very clear that if I didn't change my story, he would follow through on what he said. He finished by saying that I was stupid and that I shouldn't throw my career away over something like this. He sat back down in his chair. I then realized that instead of me, everyone was now staring at him, and they all looked kind of shocked at what he had said to me. 
but nobody said anything for probably another good minute. The Major then leaned forward, and again he repeated what he had said three times before. One last time. Tell me what you saw. With all eyes on me, I quietly told him that we'd only seen logs and brush floating in the river. That before leaving, we'd seen a regular snake carrying off some small animal, maybe a rabbit or a lucky dog that it had managed to catch. As much as I knew I was saving my career, I felt sick. I finished the story, which was a complete lie, and then sat there staring at the table. The Major finally seemed relieved. He almost smiled. The tension in the room seemed to immediately disappear, though. The Major stood up again, thanked me for my time, and strolled right out the door like it was any other day. As he turned down the hall in the direction of the front entrance, I heard him say something like, don't forget the audio tapes or get the audio tapes, something like that. The lieutenant finally spoke. He said, now don't you feel better, specialist? I just shrugged, wondering what was going to happen next. What was going to happen to me next? I was escorted back outside and driven back to where we first stopped on the base. I was told that I'd be returned to our camp at the airfield we were building. I was ordered not to discuss the incident with anyone, not even amongst the men I was with, if I ever happened to run into any of them again. Soon a vehicle arrived and I was instructed to get in it. The fact that I was being brought back alone and the guys who arrived with me weren't going back in the same vehicle, I don't want to sound dramatic, but I was 21. And with the entire experience up to that point, some pretty dark thoughts crossed my mind as I got in the truck. Like, uh, I, I wondered if I was ever going to see my mom again. I, I sincerely questioned whether they were actually going to take me back to the camp or somewhere else. So, but fortunately, they did just take me back to the airfield. I was met by a sergeant and escorted to my quarters. And for the next three days, I slept, I ate, I showered. And that's it. I was no longer allowed to perform any work or ever leave the camp. Three very long and boring days later, I was driven back to Sotocano and put on a plane. They were sending me back to Fort Bragg. On this flight out of Honduras, there were only a few people on board with me one of which was a Honduran soldier in uniform. He had three chevrons and a rocker on his rank, a sergeant. He was seated a few rows behind me, and after takeoff and reaching cruising altitude, he got up from his seat and came up to my row. He leaned down slightly and in a hushed tone asked if he could sit beside me. I nodded, not knowing what to expect. So, have you uh, seen the devil? Uh, he has seen you. You must be a good man. He did not eat you that day. You're lucky. Many, 
disappear along the cocoa. didn't expect that. Part of me hoped this guy was being serious, but after the less than friendly treatment I'd received at that point, I had my guard up. But then again, I guess I wasn't surprised that people would have heard about the incident and spread it around. I was still paranoid that this guy was maybe trying to trick me into talking about it and, you know, violating the orders I'd been given, so I stayed quiet. He didn't seem offended. He just made the sign of the cross over his chest, then he got up and returned to his seat. And the rest of the flight was uneventful. I wasn't sure what to expect when I got back. My return to Fort Bragg was likewise uneventful, but something was different somehow. I'm not saying I was shunned, but things just felt different. As if something had been communicated to my command about us me and only a month later I was transferred to Fort Campbell in Kentucky which happened to be very near my hometown in Tennessee I'd only served two years with my first command and this sudden transfer to a new unit was unusual it's the kind of thing you might expect in cases of harassment or assault or something sending someone away to a new unit to get a fresh start and I thought it was a bit odd, don't you think, sending me to the closest military base near my hometown? I thought so. I still think my command might have done it as a favor, a sort of thank you for doing what I was told, and staying quiet. And I certainly didn't rate it, but when they put me up in my own small apartment, alone, rather than in the barracks with a roommate, I also wondered if that wasn't another favor, or maybe a reason to avoid having a roommate to swap crazy stories with. I dare say my time at Fort Campbell would eventually offer up a number of other strange experiences. Well, for me, that's just the world we live in. Strange things happen and can't always explain them. As for the giant snake, El Diablo, they apparently called it, well, you can imagine I certainly looked into it over the years. There are, of course, rumors and other stories like mine. But aside from the odd 30-foot anaconda being found alive, they have since found fossils of massive snakes in Colombia. And even that was a fluke because they were strip mining, digging for coal when the bones were found. And I believe the archaeologists only had so much time to look for fossils before they continued excavating for coal and possibly destroying any other uh, fossils. They didn't find skulls or anything, but just a few bone fragments. Vertebrae, I believe. So they had to estimate the prehistoric snake's original size after doing a comparative analysis to living snakes. They estimated these snakes grew to about 40, maybe 45 feet long. And they also estimated that they lived 60 million years ago. I'm not a scientist. What they found probably was that size and lived that long ago. I know what we saw only a few decades ago. And if that Honduran soldier on the plane was serious about what he said, the Honduran locals living along the Rio Coco might still live in fear of El Diablo, even today. I really can't blame them.
incidentally. Only the cool kids stick around after the credits. So, thanks for that. As for closing statements, uh, as this is the final personal story from our friend Robert, out of respect for both him and you, I just thought it would be appropriate to maybe offer my closing thoughts on kind of the total summation of his encounters. Most of you have been nothing but kind, and it, but I have been accused of being a clickbaiter, you know, telling stories that are clearly, you know, just too extreme and um, far beyond the scope of reality. And I guess that's what I want to address, not that most of you probably think that. But when Robert first approached me with these stories, with the exception of just wanting to organize his writing a bit, no, it, it didn't take much convincing for me to want to share them with you, because one, they are anything but boring. And of course, I started this channel with the intent of telling stories that I expect a lot of people will want to listen to. I mean, who's <laughs> nobody wants an empty stage or an empty chairs, right? They want a full audience. And, and these are also stories of Robert's, which, aside from the trauma that Robert experienced by living through them, you know, they're fairly benign for the rest of us to listen to. I mean, they're not hurting anybody, I mean, by, by retelling them. But perhaps like you, I did have to acknowledge that this is a man, and I did tell Robert this at the start of our conversations, um, whose experiences in the military were nothing less than unusual. It, certainly at least compared to my own eight years of service. I never saw anything like that. And I make no claims to understanding the mysterious nature of paranormal encounters whatsoever. I am by far the most uneducated person when it comes to these things. I'm more like you guys. I'm just kind of a, a, a consumer. Now I obviously do the research, but um, I, I'm pretty juvenile in my understanding of these things. Uh, so for me, and probably for many of you, seeing it remains believing. Seeing is believing for many of us, I expect. And while I will continue to stand by my Fog of War intro, in that I encourage everyone to keep an open mind with these types of stories, but to otherwise, you know, make your own decisions on what you're willing to believe is possible. Welcome to the Smoke Pit. As we sit down in the Smoke Pit to enjoy more of each other's stories, I would like to quickly set the stage for this episode. The most recent story shared on the channel involved the strange sighting of a Roman ghost by an exhausted American soldier in Vietnam. Thomas, the soldier in that story, surmised that even he wasn't sure if what he saw was real or simply the result of a waking dream as he tried to stay awake and alert during an early morning fire watch. Thus, that idea of where our dreams end and our reality begins becomes something of a mysterious question. What is most striking about Thomas's story seems to be how a man who didn't speak Latin could either hallucinate or dream about hearing a ghost speaking a Latin phrase, a phrase about his own death that was once a common expression among ancient Roman soldiers. And Enola saw this vision and heard this cryptic message while he himself was fighting in a war in Vietnam, surrounded by death, violence, a situation which seemed to be eerily appropriate to be reminded about his own mortality. Although these following stories were not shared in direct response to that episode, 
Oddly enough, several of your fellow viewers have shared their own accounts that appear to pose this same question. And that question is, in a world of strange, paranormal, and supernatural experiences, how do we know when we can trust where our dreams end and where our reality begins? <coughs> This first story was one submitted by an Air Force veteran, Xavier. He writes, I grew up in rural Missouri, in a small town about an hour outside of St. Louis, a real drive-through town in flyover country. I served six years active duty with the United States Air Force as an avionics tech on F-16s. Then I joined the Air National Guard, where I cross-trained into a command and control position, or AFSC, working in air operations centers. I also did a stint on the state's weapons of mass destruction civil support team as a Seaburn EU recon NCO. For you non-military folks, I do apologize for all of the acronyms. I still work for the Air Force, but now as a contractor. But all of that aside, my story actually takes place during a series of events that happened before I enlisted in the military, beginning when I was a kid. about eight or nine until maybe 11 or 12 years old during my fourth fifth and sixth years of school I would repeatedly wake up during the night to see this being with black eyes peering down at me like it was standing behind the headboard of my bed and I couldn't seem to move I'm still not sure if I was suffering some kind of sleep paralysis because of that repeating nightmare, or waking dream, or whatever it was, I developed an intense fear of the dark, and started sleeping with the light on, with the covers pulled up and wrapped around my head so only my nose and mouth were visible. A lot of kids have nightmares, although I don't know how long they continue to have the same one, so admittedly, that could simply have been a bad dream, inspired by watching the Star Wars movies. But for me, this recurring nightmare continued to happen for longer than I cared to admit, until I wasn't a child anymore and became an adult. One night in the early 90s, when I was 18, I woke up in the middle of the night to see something I hadn't seen before. There was now a strange blue light flooding my room. I remember thinking that the color of the light reminded me of the blue color my mother had painted the room when we first moved into the house. But the walls weren't supposed to be blue now, because we'd repainted them white two years earlier when I was 16. So then I thought it must just be a trick of the moonlight coming in through the window. I looked at the alarm clock, the time displayed in red digital numbers, 3.01 a.m. I wanted to fall back to sleep, but for some reason, I now felt completely awake. That irritated me, because it was way too early to be waking up. And as I'm lying there, staring up at the bedroom ceiling, I suddenly felt something move on my bed. So, I looked down towards my feet. There, 
crawling towards me was what I can only describe as a gray alien. She, I don't know how I knew her gender, it was just intuitive. She froze when I looked at her. Unlike the ones you see on TV, whose skin is a uniform color and smooth, her skin had a natural, more aged appearance. And she was staring at me, considering me, with these giant, almond-shaped black eyes. I also knew that she looked somewhat different than the thing that I used to always see staring down at me. As I looked at her, she tilted her head to one side, and that's all I remember. That's when I passed out. When I woke up later that same morning and recalled what I'd seen, I immediately dismissed it as a dream. Fast forward a few years, and now I'm in my early 20s, making my first attempt at college and spending the summer at my parents' new home. Their house was in a heavily wooded area, and the last one down at the end on a gravel road. Once more, I woke up in the middle of the night, this time to a blinding white light flooding my room. I looked over, and it was like the exterior wall wasn't there anymore, and four or five small human shapes were passing through it, moving towards me. Once more, it was too much for me, and I passed out. When I woke up that next morning, again, I immediately dismissed it as a dream. That is, until later that morning, I heard my parents discussing a dream my dad had. In his dream, he apparently saw these gray aliens in his room. And during the dream, they began doing something inside his stomach. And he said that he was screaming. But my mom stayed fast asleep next to him and that I never came to his rescue. Another fast forward to the summer of 97, and I'm spending the summer in Atlanta, Georgia. I wake up from a nap to find myself lying face down on the bed, which I thought was strange because I'm usually a side sleeper. But then I realize I'm being held down. When I begin to struggle to get up, I felt these unseen hands, which were extremely strong, quickly stop me from moving. I began to panic, and then I felt sharp pain behind my right knee, as if something like a syringe had pierced my skin. Then it's over. I felt myself slip back into unconsciousness. When I woke up, I recalled what had happened and immediately looked for a mark where I felt the pain behind my knee. And I did find something that looked like a bug bite. Look, I know I may sound nuts. These are extraordinary experiences to have claimed actually happened. And even I've always been skeptical because so much of it revolves around me waking up. So really, they could just be super realistic dreams. However, like the bug bite mark, there are a few other things that haven't been easy for me to explain or to ignore, for that matter. Back when I was in fourth grade, during class one day, blood started dripping from my nose. Just a few drops at first, and then a major gush that would not stop. 
I'm not sure if it was the first nosebleed I ever had, although it might have been, but the memory of it stayed with me. The other kids were pointing and making a big deal about it, and my teacher was trying not to freak out as she had me tilt my head back and sent one of the kids to run to the bathroom for toilet paper. And then as a teen, I would also wake up with blood stains on my pillow, along with having more dried blood on my nose. And again, this is happening during the period of time when I'm also having these recurring nightmares about this being standing over me while I'm sleeping. I'm an only child, so it's not like I had a brother messing around with me, hitting me in the face or something while I'm sleeping. Then there's the missing time episode which happened about two years after the time I woke up and felt myself being held down and poked in the back of my right knee. One night, shortly after we'd moved into our new home, and maybe about a year before I joined the Air Force, I had just come home from work. I should mention that while moving into that house, I had injured that same knee, trying to pull our washing machine out of the moving truck up the steep driveway and into the house. I felt something pop in my right knee, and my doctor said I'd probably torn my meniscus, so she told me to rest and ice it. But anyway, that night, the plan was that I would stay at home and watch my son while his mother ran out to pick up dinner. As she was leaving the house, I was in his room putting him in bed since he had fallen asleep. I heard the front door close. A moment later, I had just turned away from his crib when I heard the front door open again. Figuring she had forgotten something, I went to see what she needed, since it hadn't even been a minute since she left. But then, when I saw what she was holding, I just stopped, staring at her, feeling completely dumbfounded. In her hands, she was carrying the food. She had to have been gone for at least 30 to 40 minutes. She asked me what was wrong, and then stuttered when she suddenly asked me why my knee was bleeding. I was wearing khaki pants, and I looked down and saw that blood had soaked through the front of my right pant leg. Taking them off, I saw that there was now a small wound on the front of my right knee, which I would say was approximately the same spot where I'd felt something pierce the back of my knee two years earlier, but this wound was in the front. The wound had a perfect triangular shape, three lines intersecting in the middle, where there was a small circular hole. I had no idea how I got this wound. But then, as my wife started helping me to clean the blood off my leg, something suddenly popped out of the center of it. It was this small black thing, about the size of a ballpoint pen tip, and roughly the same shape, only tapering off or pointed on both ends. It also looked charred or burned. Since it had only popped out halfway, my wife was able to pull it out with her fingers, and we were able to examine it for a while before it suddenly just crumbled into dust. No idea what it was. The Smoke Pit will be right back after these messages. And now, back to the stories. Since joining the military, these kinds of more obvious experiences have stopped. 
However, to this day, I'll randomly get the sensation that I'm being watched or I'm not alone in an empty house. Intuitively, I seem to sense they are there, even as I try to tell myself that I'm just imagining things. This is why I've been paying attention to the news about the DOD declassifying UFOs. Now they're called Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAPs. This kind of news is validating for me. When respectable military officers like Commander David Fravor and Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich talk about being directed to investigate a strange radar contact and not being able to explain what they saw and captured on gun camera footage, it's certainly easier for me to talk about the things I've experienced that I can't explain. I had a friend in college who agreed to go on the air at the university's campus radio station to talk about his experiences, only to be cruelly mocked by the DJs. There's been a few other times I've told someone about all this, only to get burned. I'm not sure what anyone else has done to try and cope with this type of thing, but some time ago I discovered that writing about my experiences has been helpful. So now I write paranormal fiction. Through writing, I can explore these stories at face value and consider what it would mean if we lived in a universe where we aren't alone and in a world where they are here. Some claim these entities are angels whose mission it is to save us from ourselves, be it making the Earth uninhabitable through environmental catastrophe or nuclear Armageddon. Some religious people claim they are demons disguised as aliens. When I consider the possibility that the Greys and potentially other aliens are real, I don't think they're either angel or demon. The sense I have is that we are sentient lab animals to them, specimens to be tranquilized, tracked, and possibly experimented on. That's not to say they mean us harm. We do the same thing to other animals. The marine biologists on Shark Week certainly don't mean to harm the sharks that they capture and tag for future observation. In my mind, this sort of benign curiosity isn't the worst possible outcome or contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence. With luck, a few of them might be the cosmic version of Jane Goodall, who develop a deep compassion for primitive animals. And still, I can't even claim with any certainty that these are real beings, or since I am one of many, that this hasn't been some kind of shared illusion or dream that is deeply programmed into our collective human subconsciousness. I really couldn't say. So, instead... I write. As with many of these stories shared so far in the smoke pit, and now including Xavier's, I want to offer everyone my sincere thanks for giving me the opportunity to share these stories with the rest of the audience here. I certainly don't know what to make of these strange events, although I, I have had my own strange experiences with dreams blending into reality. The smoke pit gets weirder every day. I dare say myself and Xavier both look forward to reading your comments. As for Xavier, with regard to his writing, I want to offer him my congratulations, as he is now a published author, his first book being released just this past week on May 4th. As much as I have found it therapeutic in a way, sharing my own military experiences through the stories here on the channel, 
His writing and his stories certainly convey not only his own military experience, but the emotional and psychological impact his paranormal experiences have had on him. He wanted to sponsor the video, but I simply couldn't accept. I told him no. The opportunity to share his personal story was more than enough. But I do want to promote his incredible work, as I am more than happy to share his book with those of you who are looking for something new and downright chilling to read. Be sure to check out his book. There is a link here, and for more information, there are more links in the description section of this video. I mentioned at the beginning there would be multiple stories like this. There most certainly are, and those will continue in the next Smoke Pit episode. Up next, we will hear another personal account, this one from a man living in the state of Georgia who, like Xavier, has had an unusual series of experiences which seem to blur the line between his dreams and his waking reality. Thank you all for watching. If you also have a story to share with us, you are welcome to post it in the comment section or to email me at wartimestories.yt at gmail.com. I do have some closing thoughts coming up in the credits, but whether in dreams or in reality or somewhere in between, I will see you in the next episode. guys, thanks again for sticking around for the credits. As of the making of this episode, there are just about 68,000 subscribers to this channel. Thank Welcome to the smoke pit. As we sit down in the smoke pit to enjoy more of each other's strange stories, I would like to quickly set the stage for this episode. In the last smoke pit episode, we listened to the story of an Air Force veteran, Xavier, and his numerous experiences with paranormal entities, what he believes were aliens, events that even he isn't entirely certain were either real or part of a recurring nightmare. But then there were things that happened during his waking reality, unexplained marks or wounds on his skin, or both he and his father inexplicably sharing similar nightmares of alien visitation 
the same night. In this episode, we will continue to explore the strange nature of dreams, another instance where what happens in someone's subconscious mind appears to bleed over into his waking reality, which then gives his vivid dreams the appearance of being something else. When speculating on strange encounters or observations, such as with ghosts, strange beings, or UFOs, I've noticed that many of us can only shrug and admit that we don't know what it was that we saw, or what it meant, if anything. And perhaps over time these events fade into memory, or we determinedly make a conscious effort to convince ourselves that what we saw was nothing unusual, or perhaps just an illusion, our mind playing tricks on us. But then when these experiences happen for a second time, or a third time, it becomes much more difficult for us to forget about what we saw, or to ignore its possible meaning. So what if we had a dream about something, something terrifying, and then later, when we were wide awake, we saw something we thought was impossible, something that we saw in our nightmare. What will we make of it? What will we do about it? This next story is just such an occurrence, the account of a married man with children, now in his late 40s, a recent early retiree from his position as a bank operations manager. His name is Chad. He writes, Before having these experiences of my own, beginning in 2019, I would have undoubtedly considered someone like myself to be completely out of their mind crazy. I would have thought anyone who said that they saw a UFO or Bigfoot or anything like that was, you know, making it up to get attention or something. But now, the combination of these experiences I'm about to describe makes it very hard for me to ignore that they may be somehow related to one another and that they aren't just random events. And while I, I admit they might mean nothing, my concern is that they do mean something. But I just have no idea what that is. I have theories, yes, but none that I'm certain about. And of course, I don't expect most people to even believe me, because there was a time when I wouldn't have believed them. I, I just want to relay these experiences and allow others to decide what to take from them discard from my accounts. The first event took place on the morning of August 21st, 2019. While I was sleeping that night, I had an unusual dream. In my dream, I was in my car with my family, and we were driving down the road at night. There were trees on both sides, and the night sky had a reddish hue to it. As the car began to crest over the top of the hill, I could see these red and blue lights coming down from something on the horizon. My oldest son then said, Pop, I want to go see the red and blue lights. What I then said to him in this dream was that these were alien crafts and that these aliens were here to deceive mankind into believing they were here to help us. So, instead of traveling further towards the lights, I veered the car off to the left, 
of a side road that rose in elevation overlooking a town with several large buildings towards my right. And there, sitting perfectly still, hovering above the buildings, was a very large circular craft that was gray in color. It wasn't hiding itself. It clearly wanted the people to see it. And more surprising to me were the multitudes of people that gathered around below it to welcome these beings. I could see that the people were very excited, almost like a people at a music concert. Then this craft shot a beam of yellow light onto one of the rooftops directly in front of it, which produced a huge entity, white in color, and I knew it was going to attack the multitudes of people. I then immediately woke up and sat up in bed. I don't know if it's important, but I can't really give a good description of the huge entity because I woke up suddenly while it was still materializing on the roof of the building. My best description would be that it looked like a strange, large predator-type animal. Its body was big, bearish, or maybe wolfish. Its face also bearish, but maybe more like a lion. I'd later find out that there is a cryptid that looks something like this called the Ozark Howler. I'm not saying that's what it was, but after seeing a drawing of one, I'd say that is as close as I can find to anything that looks like what I saw in the dream. But whatever it was supposed to be, the entity was completely white in color. Like most weird dreams everyone probably has, I think I completely forgot about it after I woke up. I just went about my morning routine and didn't give it a second thought. I was driving my oldest son to school that morning, and he was taking a long time to get ready. So I shouted at him to tell him to hurry up or he's going to be late. For those of you parents with teenagers, the response I got back was expected. Uh, He spent the rest of the morning mad at me and ignoring me, avoiding eye contact and staring down at his phone as we got into the car and pulled out of the driveway. The road leading out of my small subdivision sort of snaked its way out to the highway, and so I didn't have a clear line of sight to the intersection until we had driven down the street a bit. But when I couldn't see the intersection, I looked up above the tall pine trees across the highway and saw a craft, a UFO, just above the treetops. It was just floating there this football-shaped, battleship-gray-colored thing, hovering completely motionless. Because my window was down, and I didn't hear anything, silently over the trees. In the middle of it was a black, circular spot, or maybe an opening of some kind. It was probably about the size of two minivans, if you put them end-to-end. And it was blurry, or rather there was some kind of haziness that surrounded the entire thing, almost like it was trying to conceal itself. The haze was kind of like looking through gasoline fumes, or when you look at the air just above the ground on a hot day. I did end up watching a UFO documentary that was done a few years ago, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. In that documentary, I heard Bob Lazar, the physicist who broke the story about Area 51 back in 1989, He explained this haze as being a gravitational heart-shaped envelope that is emitted from its anti-gravitational generator that allows it to hover motionless, 
according to his conclusions, it envelops the craft and distorts gravity waves. And maybe that's a point to make here. With documentaries like that as a reference, sure, I can talk about what I saw now, in retrospect. But as odd as seeing something like that clearly was for me, or anyone else, as I was driving down my street, I certainly wish I had taken a picture of it, or even had the thought to do so. It, I mean, for some reason, I don't really think my mind registered what I was seeing at the time, you know? And with his face still buried in his phone, my son didn't look up and see it. It's, it's difficult to describe the experience. You know, my mind trying to make sense of something I, that doesn't really look like anything I've ever seen. Something that wasn't supposed to be there. You know, like, is it a satellite dish? No. It's like, imagine you're driving down the road and you see a 75-foot-tall man run across the road in front of you and then disappear. What would you think? Would your immediate reaction be to take a picture? How do you, how do you deal with something like that? It's not supposed to be possible. This was just something I couldn't believe. As much as I knew at the time, this thing wasn't even supposed to exist. It wasn't until sometime afterward that I realized that I'd probably gone into shock. I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And so I just kept driving. By the time I got to the intersection, because it was sitting further back over the trees, the object had become obscured by the treetops. I'm sure anyone would ask why no one else on the highway could see it. And, I mean, I don't even know if they couldn't, but that's possibly why. You'd have to be driving down my street to see it from that vantage point. When I got to the intersection, I was more focused on the traffic I was merging into. I just turned left, like I always do, heading towards my son's school. But as I turned onto the highway, I remember checking my mirrors to see if, I don't know, if I could still see it, or maybe I was worried it was going to start following us. It didn't. And as we drove down the highway, at no point could I see it in any of my mirrors. After dropping my son off, I headed back home. Turning back onto my street, I looked back above those pine treetops and saw that the craft was no longer there. So when I got into the house, well, I sat down by myself and tried to figure out what the hell had just happened. I imagine this. And then as I'm sitting there thinking, I suddenly remember the dream that I'd woken up from that morning about an alien craft and aliens deceiving mankind, saying they were going to help us, only to then attack us or hurt us somehow. But that was it. And what was I supposed to do with this information? Tell someone? <laughs> Tell them what? But I couldn't shake this feeling I had, like, I was supposed to understand what seeing that UFO meant. I will admit, given the context of the thing i just seen, that terrified me, because it seemed very clear to me that my dream and that thing were related. It had to be. What else was I supposed to think? I mean, I think I'm a rational guy, but, man, I got a wife, two kids, and I had this horrible thought that it's as if this thing was telling me, we know where you live. We can get to you or your family at any time. So keep your mouth shut about the dream and move on. And at that time, I decided to do exactly that. I told no one, not my wife, my family, my closest friends. I made this decision not necessarily 
because I thought I would be ridiculed or that my family or friends wouldn't believe me, but out of fear for my family's safety. I ultimately decided that I would take this encounter with me to the grave. And then I spent the next several weeks trying to downplay the whole thing, to write it off as you know, something I just imagined. But then I saw it again. The smoke pit will be right back after these messages. And now, back to the stories. It was six weeks after the first sighting, now on October 4th, my oldest son's birthday. And I promise I am not making this up to make this all seem more dramatic. What freaked me out was when I remembered that it was my oldest son in the dream I had. It was my son who said in the dream that he wanted to go see the red and blue lights. And now I'm seeing this thing near my house again on his birthday. This time I saw it as I was driving home, after dropping him and my youngest son off at each of their schools. So when I drove home, I was coming back from the other direction, about to turn left onto my street. It wasn't sitting over the trees on my right, where I had first seen it. Now it was further west, maybe less than a mile from my home. But since these objects presented themselves in a completely different manner, I do not know if they were the same craft or two different ones. But at a distance, it certainly looked similar to the first one. I'm asking myself, why is this here? And yes, the thought occurred to me to drive closer to it, you know, to keep driving down the highway towards it. But then I thought, hell no, there is no way I'm doing that. So instead of doing that or pulling off the highway onto my street, I just pulled off immediately to the right side of the turning lane and sat in my car watching this thing for approximately six minutes. I used the clock on my dashboard to time it. But like before, it didn't move at all. It just hovered there looking like a bright light off in the distance. At this point, I'm thinking that other people have to be seeing this, right? It's right there. And so at that point, I finally decided to take a picture of it before turning onto my street and going home. Before going inside, I took my phone back out to look at the photo I'd taken. Uh, I was honestly hoping that by taking a picture of it, you know, rather than having a picture to prove that I saw something, I was going to pull out my phone and there would be nothing in the photo. And then I could prove to myself that I was just imagining all this. But nope, there it was. The photo quality isn't great because it was a good distance away, but there it was. Maybe I was being paranoid, but at that point I knew I had to say something to my wife my family because God knows what if something happened to me I thought that at least my family should know what I had seen I knew how it must look to them like I had lost my mind so at first they I, I thought they might have been waiting for a punchline but they quickly seemed to get that I was being serious and they were all very supportive um, they know that I'm a man of my word they all tried to offer possible explanations as to what this could all mean. I, I had once thought that I wished my son had also seen the UFO, you know, since he was sitting in the car with me, but looking down at his phone the entire time. But I've had others tell me 
that it's probably best he didn't see it for his sake. That would that it would be too difficult for him to have to deal with at that age. And I, I do have to agree with them. I have had one additional dream about these crafts. My wife being in the dream with me, and it was much more personal than the first dream, and, and it's not something I really want to share. Um, I still look up above those pine trees every time I drive down my street. Uh, there is a house just off the highway, approximately below the spot where the craft would have been hovering, and you know I have thought about going over and knocking on their door once or twice, uh, but then I really can't imagine that would turn out so well. Imagine being the guy who answers the door and I'm standing there asking about UFOs. <laughs> Could you imagine? So, I never bothered. Look, I by no means consider myself a prophet, a psychic, gifted, or hell, even a very interesting person for that matter. But, well, here's my theory. Take it or leave it. I have now concluded that it had nothing to do with the pine trees or the location, but... That craft had everything to do with a stern warning. I know this is going to make me sound even stranger, but I now feel as if all these UFO sightings and other events around the world, the media, our government and military now acknowledging the existence of these things after denying them for decades, it's as if the barrier between this dimension and another dimension is thinning. These things are now crossing over into ours in greater numbers. And what I mean is that it's like they're entering our dimension via portals rather than traveling from distant planets or galaxies. But, look, I know it sounds crazy, but that's what I've come up with. Ultimately, my faith is in God, not in man or aliens or dimensional entities. I really couldn't say for certain what any of this means or whether I'm supposed to warn anyone about an event like the one in my dream, something that's supposed to happen in the future. I welcome anyone else's theories, questions, observations, and outright scrutiny. But whatever you think about me or my story, I do not believe it's my responsibility to convince anyone to believe anything. All I can think to do is to at least share the story and see what comes of it. So, what are we to make of Chad's story? Compared to many of the other subscribers,